If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're wrapping up our Hoosier One series, and uh, I want to I encourage you with this. Today we're going to be looking at, obviously we're going to look at uh, really the, the, the road before Jesus goes to the cross, um, but we're going to look at a specific part on the cross, actually. This week we're, we're, we're running into Holy Week. There's a lot of things that go on during Holy Week. Again, as Chris said, the videos we believe will kind of hope make some sense of some things. They're just a primer video really to push you into Scripture. Um, the goal of the video is not to, to teach you all of that scripture, but to just kind of preface some things as you jump in. So each day this week, you're going to get a video on Facebook. If you don't or haven't liked us already on Facebook, we want to encourage you to do that because um, it'll have the reading plan as you go along. Luke chapter 23. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of context uh, with what's going on. We've been taking uh, a, a few weeks to talk about this idea of who's your one and the reality of who's your one. And, and, and a lot of times what we have to understand is the early church, while it was attractive, was really missional is what we call it. It's the idea of being on mission, right? The early church looked and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to do what God has called us to do. We've, we've got to be obedient, number one, to Scripture. Number two, we've got to go and make disciples. When Jesus went to the cross, or, or after Jesus went to the cross and he rose again, he left the disciples with this statement. He said, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And then he says, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. So it's important for us to understand while the early church was, was all about reaching people, we have to begin to understand also that it's all about obedience, that when the early church was obedient, the early church grew. The early church grew as a result of leading people to Christ. And what we want to stand on that is that truth. So this idea of who's your one is just asking you to pray about a person that you know that doesn't know Jesus and then as a result of that prayer and consistent spending time in the word, that you would take the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with that person. And, and I believe wholeheartedly that one leads to two, leads to four, right? The idea is multiplication, not addition. We're really good at addition. And most churches oftentimes add by taking from another church, right? I mean, it, 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 that's the reality of church growth, which is a shame, um, because what we do is we just get upset somewhere and we go over here and we go to another one or, or we move on. But I want to jump into Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 32. And as we look at this, I want you to think about what's taking place. If we were to read chapter 22 of Luke, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about just reading some of this, but it would have taken much too long. I want to give you a, a little context of what's gone on in Luke chapter 22 all the way up through chapter 23. Um, and what's happened is, is Luke 22 into 23 is the, the Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. As he's entering the city, the palm branches are laid down. We just talked about this whole idea of entering to Hosanna. In Luke chapter 23, he gets in. He goes to Pilate, right? Jesus is brought before Pilate. And as he's brought before Pilate, he's accused by the Pharisees and tax collectors of, of basically blasphemy, Right? He's going against the traditions of the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion, of the nation of Israel. He's stepped up against the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more of a problem than a benefit in the life of Jesus, even though Jesus was more of a benefit than a problem in their life. Then they go to this point where they take him from Pilate to Herod, 
And Herod says, I don't find anything against him, right? They accuse him of all kinds of things. And Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus. They dressed him in an elegant robe, and then they sent him back to Pilate. And here's the crazy thing about this, this context of what's going on. It says in the Bible that Herod and Pilate didn't get along at all. But then Jesus shows up. And in the midst of Jesus showing up and being accused falsely by the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and, tax, or, or the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law, in the midst of that, it says that Herod and Pilate grew closer together. <laughs> it was like they all of a sudden got along over the fact that they were literally persecuting or going to kill a man who was not guilty. It says in verse 12 of Luke chapter 23, that day Herod and Pilate became friends before they had been enemies. Isn't it interesting that enemies become friends over the fact that they are against Jesus? So Pilate calls together the chief, chief priests sorry, and the rulers, and he says, basically, you brought this man to me, but I have found nothing wrong with him. What do you want to happen? And they said, we want him crucified. And he's like, no, that's not the way it is. But he gives them a choice. And they give him a choice and he says, okay, I'm going to punish someone and then I will release somebody else. Who would you rather have me punish or who would you ha rather have me release? And they cry out and they say, we would rather have you release Barabbas than we would have you release Jesus. Matter of fact, we'd rather see Jesus crucified. And so they release one of the worst of the worst at that point in time in the culture and they cry out, crucify Jesus. And as we get into verse 20, or sorry, verse 32, we'll kind of give you a context of what has gone on. And let's jump into verse 32. Follow along with me. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Listen to what it says. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, also known as Golgotha, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up, and they mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar, and said, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. And then there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who, saw, who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I might tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the rest of the sermon. Father, we pray, really, that your words would speak to us. God, we know that your words are, are active and living. We know that they divide bone and marrow from joints and marrow, that they are used to correct and to teach and to rebuke and train in all righteousness. And so, Lord, may we line, align ourselves or place ourselves under the authority of your word, that your spirit would convict us, that you would guide us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So as we look at this, I want you to think about really what's going on. Jesus is led out to the place of the skull, also known as the place of, of Golgotha. It's outside the town. It's where classic or the normal crucifixions would take place in the life of the city of Jerusalem. That when anybody was violent or anybody who was a criminal was sentenced to death, then they would be led out there and they would be crucified. And it was the Roman torturous way of showing people to say, hey, look, here's what's going to happen if you get out of line. Here's what's going to happen if you break the law. Here's what's going to happen. And we're going to make it so it's a spectacle for all to see. And so they're led out to this place after the point of beatings and floggings for Jesus. He's led out carrying part of his cross until Simon of Cyrene comes and he begins to carry the cross to the rest of the way. And when they get out there, Jesus is set in the middle while the other two are set on either side. And the reason why I want to bring or want to look at this today is because I believe, based upon what we see here in the text, is that there are two sides of the cross. As a matter of fact, I would say there are two sides in our lives to the cross. And we're either on one side of Jesus or the other. In our lives and in the lives of these thieves, what we begin to see is there are those who are going to reject, those who are going to walk away, those who are going to call them on the carpet, those who are going to say, no way, not going to happen, no, I'm not going to acknowledge my guilt. I'm not going to acknowledge my sins. I'm not going to acknowledge that I deserve this. And then on the other side, there's going to be the one who's going to cry out to the Lord for saving. And so what we see is two sides of the cross. On one side is the thief who says, not going to happen. On the other side is the thief who says, remember me today where you are going. And so as we jump into this, what we have to begin to understand, or what I want you to see is this, that there are false accusations all across that are going on on Jesus. There are false accusations of a subverting a nation. There are these false accusations of blasphemy. There's these false accusations by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then there are two guilty men and one is innocent that is crucified. Two bad and one good. Two who live for themselves in the sinful nature and one who lived for the perfect life for all mankind. These two men were hung on opposite sides of Jesus. Both of them deserving punishment, but both of them responding in two completely drastic and different ways. And I think as we look at this text today, what we'll in reality say is this, I line up with one of those two men. One of those two men that were crucified on either side is who I line up with. It's who I look at and say, yeah, that's what I can see in my life. And so as we get into this today, we're going to see that no one, number one, is beyond redemption, and number two, that faith is not dependent on the circumstances of your life, but on belief in Jesus Christ. See, a lot of us have pasts, right? We can look at our past and go, see, I'm not good enough, or I can look at my past and go, there's no way God can help me. I've got, I've got friends, I've got buddies, I've got neighbors, I've got, I got guys who would tell me over and over and over again, man, if I come into your church, it's probably going to burn down right? Or I'm going to get struck by lightning and I don't want either one of those. At which point I say, well, how did we get to that point where we look at people and go, you're too far gone? Or how do we get people to think that they have to be perfect to come to church, right? Here's the big idea or the big statement from this text that I want us to see. See, Jesus has been mocked and ridiculed for centuries. The life of Jesus 
The statements of Jesus have been mocked and ridiculed for centuries on end. But he is the savior who freely offers grace and forgiveness of sins. That's important for us to keep that in mind. Jesus has been mocked and ridiculed for years. Matter of fact, there may be somebody here today who would say, you know, we're entering into this Easter time frame, and there's a deep down inside maybe a mocking or a ridiculing of thinking there's no way any of this could happen. Or maybe there's just a doubt. But Jesus has been mocked and ridiculed for centuries. And yet there's the authority of his word, and yet the truth of who he is continues to move on throughout our culture and throughout eternity. So I want to look at this in three separate ways. I want us to see some things here today that uh, I believe this text points out to us. Number one is this. We live in a world of doubt and disbelief. We live in a world of doubt and disbelief. As a matter of fact, the idea is, is if you can't show it, I don't believe it right? And even when you do show somebody something, right? I mean, all you got to do is go to social media or look at things online and you could post a video and you'll have one side of the people saying, see, this is what I see. And you got another side of the people saying, this is what I see. And we can't even come to a conclusion over a video, can we? Right? Was it intentional? Was it, was it not intentional? Did he try and hurt somebody? Did he not try? And, I mean, that's, that's what we get. We see it based upon what we want to believe. We can either believe the good in people or we can believe the bad in people. We can either look for the positive or we can look for the negative. I believe one of the biggest struggles right now going on in the lives of believers is this, that we are so worried about what's going on because we realize we have no control, that we begin to fret, worry, be anxious, frustrated, and think, oh God, what the heck are you doing? When the reality is God knows everything that's going on, he's got everything under control, why are you fretting and worrying about it? Either God is who he said he is, or God has walked away and forgotten. And I don't believe the second is even possible. I believe that God is active, he is living, he is involved in what's going on, and it's important for us to understand that we live in a world of doubt and disbelief. Look at this, all the previous content in Luke, what we see gives us this picture about people's beliefs of who Jesus was, right? Jesus rides in on this donkey, and they're prepared to anoint him as the king, as the savior of the Jewish society as of Jewish culture. He was going to establish his kingdom. And then in the midst of all that, they begin to also reject him. They begin to doubt and have disbelief because he's not fulfilling what they thought, which was he's going to rise up and he's going to establish the Jewish kingdom as the primary kingdom. He's going to defeat all these crazy Romans. And so we live in a world of doubt and disbelief. Listen to what it says. The people stood, what? Watching Verse 35, and the rulers even sneered at him and they said, he saved others. Let him save himself as if he is the Christ, the son of, or the chosen one, the Christ of God, the chosen one. It's important for us to understand what's taking place here. Jesus has just spent the last three years performing all kinds of miracles, hasn't he? Like if we were to look at the extent of the miracles that he performs, Jesus has spent these years performing miracles in front of these religious leaders. And we just looked at one last week or a couple of weeks ago. With the lowering of the paralytic man between the roof of the, of the house. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were mad because he tells the guy, 
your sins are forgiven. And they're like, what the heck? Who's this guy? And he's like, all right, you don't believe me that I can forgive sins? What's, what's easier, to forgive sins or to tell this guy get up and walk? So he tells the guy get up and walk. He does all of these things, whether it's the healing of the paralytic, the healing of the blind, the healing of the death, the death, death, healing of death, right? He, he raises a, a, a ruler's daughter, Jairus' daughter from the grave. He, he, he does all kinds of things. He heals leprous people. He raises Lazarus from the grave. And yet people still doubted and had, had an unbelief towards him, right? And so we live in a world, listen, we live in a world that's full of doubt. It's full of disbelief. And I'm gonna even say this. We live in a world that wants to teach you that what scripture says doesn't matter anymore because scripture's old and outdated. And here's the problem. When I go down the slippery slope of saying scripture's old and outdated, then what you're saying is that you doubt and you have unbelief that God is who he said he is. That what Jesus claims is of utmost importance and value in my life. We live in a world full of doubt and disbelief. See, some believe these men, these two men that were crucified on either side of Jesus, some believe that these men might have been, get this, might have been part of Barabbas' gang. So they release Barabbas, who was possibly going to be the one who was going to be crucified. And instead, they release Barabbas, and they crucify two of these men on either side. Now, that's just some. That's, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's who these guys are. We don't know who they are. The Bible doesn't tell us who they are. But it's important for us to keep in mind what's going on. So we see these two men who are guilty, and some believe that they were part of this gang possibly, and there's the mocking thief on one side, and there's the, what I'll call the repentant thief or the believing thief on the other. But Jesus, listen, Jesus had fed 5,000 with fewer than, than, than a couple loaves and some fish. He had cast out demons from two possessed men. He had healed the blind, the deaf, and the paralytic. He had raised Jairus' daughter as well as Lazarus from the dead. See, Jesus came with this glorious message that entrance into the kingdom of God was not based, listen, not based upon genealogy. In other words, not based upon how you were born or who you were born to or what nation you came from. It wasn't based on nationalism. It wasn't based on the fact that you grew up going to temple or knew all of the Torah and the law. That none of that led you to salvation or the point of, 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 of belief in Jesus. But the reality is that Jesus' atoning sacrifice is what gives you or what offers you the ability of forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who offers us grace on the cross and the forgiveness of sins. And so it's through Jesus, the doubt and disbelief that so many have, that we are able to approach God the Father through the Son. Now listen, again, I can sit here and we, I can say, we live in a world of doubt and disbelief. All I gotta do is watch a little bit of History Channel or a little bit of TLC, especially as we approach this week. Because there's going to be all kinds of stories. Was Jesus who he claimed to be? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? But what we see in scripture is a backing of the truth of what he says. See, verse 35, listen to what happens. It says, he saved others, let him save himself. And I think it's important for us to understand this, that in the midst of doubt and disbelief, 
I believe that one of the reasons these people doubted and disbelieved is because Jesus had saved everybody else. And now he doesn't save himself. And so people go, see, he wasn't really the Messiah. When the truth of the matter had to be this, that Jesus had to die. If Jesus got off the cross, if Jesus saves himself at that point, there is no blood atonement. There's no sacrifice for sins. There's no forgiveness of sins according to what we see in scripture. So Jesus has to stay there. And yet there's doubt and disbelief because of Jesus' actions. So Jesus does miracles, there's doubt and disbelief. Jesus doesn't do a miracle, there's doubt and disbelief. You see two sides of the cross? And likewise, we're going to see two sides of the cross and these two individuals are crucified with him. Here's number two that I want you to see, the second thing. There's the mocking thief. And maybe you would line yourself up with this that you deny guilt and sin and continue to live as if God doesn't exist. That's the mocking thief. That's what we see in verses 39 and following. That's what he says. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. See, surely someone who did all that Jesus would and could save himself and the thieves to think of everything that Jesus done, surely this guy, if he's really God, not only would he save himself, but if he's God, then you better save me. Then I'll believe. Then I'll follow you. I'll use this and point this just a little bit further. See, I believe that here's one of the problems. We talked about these men were possibly part of Barabbas's gang, possibly. I'm not gonna say that. I'm not gonna quote that. But the mocking thief would believe if Jesus saved him. Can I tell you something that goes on all throughout scripture? And what we see is it's all in our lives. There are consequences for your actions. There are consequences for your sins. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't make Jesus any more or any less God. It's just comfort for your ability to say, oh, see, if he was God, then he wouldn't let me suffer through these consequences. See, what I believe this thief is really questioning is this. If you're really God, then you would let me out of these consequences of death. You would get me off this cross. Because when you would get me off this cross, then I'll believe you. The problem is that's not belief. Jesus has already shown everything that he stood for. He did it through his actions and the miracles all throughout those three years. And he comes to this point, and if he takes himself off the cross, he's down. If he takes this man off the cross, this man's not going to believe anyways because he hasn't believed previously. And here's the way I kind of see this in my life or in the lives of people that I've seen around us. You want out of consequences of sin, or maybe you don't even want to acknowledge sin. And when we choose not to acknowledge sin, what we do is we look and we try and make ourselves righteous. And the Bible's clear, there's no one righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You get the picture, right? The one side of the cross is, is the mocking thief who says, I don't need God anyways. I can get through this life on my own. I don't need your forgiveness. I grew up with a tough childhood and I'm gonna get through life on my own without you. See, the mocking thief is denying any guilt and sin in his life. 
And let me be very clear with this. I believe you can be a person who grew up and has gone to church and yet be a mocking person because you sit back and you go, I deserve salvation while other people don't. And the minute you go down that road of thinking that you deserve it, you've missed the point of what the gospel is. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that you can't boast. The only boasting a believer can do, a person who follows Jesus, the only boasting that you have is in the power of the cross, the forgiveness of Jesus, the grace he poured out on that cross and the life he offers as a result of his resurrection. See, the mocking thief will deny guilt and sin. That's why I love having conversations when people go, I'm not a sinner. I said this on Wednesday. I never, and I'll say this consistently, I never had to teach my kids how to do wrong. It came natural. <laughs> and they're pastor's kids, so don't tell me your kids don't do the same thing, right? Like, and that doesn't matter if they're pastor's kids or not. We never had to teach our kids to go the bad road, to do the, the sinful things, to be disobedient. We had to teach them how to be obedient, Right? And likewise, we have to teach him what it means to love and to follow the Lord each and every day. And sometimes that means that we have to show them that we love and follow the Lord even in the midst of our guilt and sin, that I can confess my sins to them, that I can say, look, I was out of line and I was wrong in the way I acted or what I did. See, Jesus always meets the other needs or the needs of others physically to show his salvation for all mankind, but we have a choice on how we're going to look at what he does or how he meets those needs. The mocking thief says, I don't need it. I don't got any sin. I don't have any guilt. I don't have any problems. I'll stay here. But there's the other side of the cross, the second side, which I call the believing thief. And the believing thief admits guilt and believes that Jesus is true and faithful. Listen to what he says in verse 40. But the other criminal, and I love this part, says it rebuked him. So I'm kind of thinking in my mind, if these two dudes were part of the same gang, it's like this dude was in the motorcycle gang from the movies and he starts calling the other dude out and saying, well, dude, what you're doing is wrong. And so the guy on the other side of the cross rebukes the thief on the other side who's mocking Jesus. And in the midst of his rebuke, he asks him this question, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. Listen, all three of them up there were under the same sentence, right? Which is death. Jesus went so freely the other went so mockingly and the other went so believing. Listen to what he says in verse 41. And here's why I said he admits guilt. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. The Bible is very clear. It says all your righteousness is like filthy rags. That anything that I can say that I offer, that I bring, that I show, the, the good works that I try and do is like a filthy rag. And here's the crazy part about it. In some way, shape, or form, we get caught up in this mind that God, when I do these good things, then all the things that happen in my life should be good. When that's not the result. 
you can walk in obedience and still walk in suffering. And let me be very clear. I think this is where the American church has a a, a bad theology of suffering. Because we look at somebody who suffered in life and we go, oh man, they must just not be following Jesus. When what we see all throughout scripture is when people were obedient and followed Jesus, they suffered. They suffered persecution. They suffered broken friendships. They lost financially. Please hear me out when I say this. We've got a portion of American Christianity with this health and wealth gospel. If you just follow Jesus, you would be wealthy, which is the biggest farce in the world. Jesus wants you rich. Yes, he does. Rich in his love. Rich in extending his grace. Rich in understanding what it means to sacrifice for those who are around us. The believing thief admits guilt. Listen to what he says again, one more time, right? Don't you fear God since you and I are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, despite witnessing the same event that the thief The other thief miraculously does. This guy sees Jesus in a different light, miraculously. And what God's own people didn't see, this thief on the cross did see. He acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. That's literally the statement that he's making when he makes that statement. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, because what he's saying is, Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. Now, we don't know anything about this. Again, I make a conjecture based upon some readings that I did that maybe these guys were part of Barabbas' crew, but maybe they weren't. But what we do know is these two men were guilty and were punished or sentenced to death. One walked in a mocking way and one walked in a believing way. And maybe, just maybe, he saw the miracles of Jesus that had been performed. Or maybe, maybe he just saw one. But in the midst of seeing that one miracle, he he comes to the conclusion, even in the midst of living a life full of sin and guilt because he just got caught, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says to Jesus, you can call it a deathbed confession if you want to. I believe he knew it, but what he allowed was he allowed sin to rule his life until the point of death was about to come. But it doesn't matter. Because at this point, he acknowledges, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the promise of Jesus. What does he say to this this man? I tell you the truth. It's important for us to remember those words. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. See, while the first thief believes Jesus has nothing to offer, the other asks Jesus to exercise his authority as king and to assure him a place in the kingdom. Jesus, will you exercise the authority you have, not just over raising Lazarus from the dead, not just over healing the sick, the lame, the mute, the lepers, and everything else, not just from feeding the 5,000. Will you exercise the authority you have by inviting me and allowing me to enter your kingdom? And Jesus says, 
you will be with me in paradise today. See, the faith of this thief was so great. He had rebuked the other criminal for mocking the sinless lamb of God. And then he asked Jesus to show favor for him or to him when his kingdom was realized and he was pronounced king of the living and the dead. I want to flip over to Proverbs chapter one because I think it's something I want to, I just, as I was reading, I want you to think or listen to what takes place here in verse 22 and following. I'm going to read to the end of Proverbs chapter one. Listen to what he says. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways and how long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave you or gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn, listen, will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you and when calamity overtakes you like a storm and when disasters sweep over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then, listen to verse 28, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look to me, but you will not find me. Since you have hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. There's an important thing to understand here on two sides of the cross. And that is this, that Jesus for centuries has been crying out and calling out, showing his goodness and his favor. And when we continue to walk in a mocking way, when we continue to walk in disobedience and say, I choose to walk in sin and I'm okay with the guilt because I'll deal with that at a later date. When we choose those, those directions, what Jesus says, what we're seeing here in scripture is this, he's gonna let you go. It's kind of like a fish when you catch a fish and you just kind of let it keep on running. He's gonna let you run. He's gonna let you continue to run into the sin and the debauchery. He's working to, to call out to you. He's trying to say, hey, this is the way. But when we continue to walk in disobedience, at some point, he's just gonna say, okay, I've gotta let him go. But at some point, hopefully, they'll turn around. And I think it's important for us to remember the two sides of the cross. There's the one who in a mocking fashion says, there's no way I don't need this. If you were really God, you would save me from the consequences of my sin. Now listen, he's listening or hoping for a physical deliverance when what he really needs is the spiritual deliverance, the eternal deliverance of Jesus on the cross. And then there's the other who confesses his guilt, who calls out to the king, and asks him to remember him in paradise. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I think it's important as we enter into this Holy Week that we kind of evaluate and ask ourselves, where are we at? Where am I at individually? Because listen, we live in a world full of doubt. We live in a world full of unbelief or disbelief 
We live in a world that says, ah, the Bible's outdated. Jesus, okay, that's great, but you got to get with the times. And what I want us to understand is this, that when we operate in that realm, we operate as the mocking thief. Because what we say is, if Jesus loved me, he'll let me do what the heck I want. When the reality is that Jesus' love pays the price for the sins of what we've done and will continue to do, not wanting to do them openly or freely, not wanting to fight against the spirit. But, but listen, his death on the cross pays the price for our sins. And in the midst of that, he calls us to a life of obedience and love. Number one, to love God first. You know, everybody always wants to bring this up, love your neighbor as yourself. But the reality is the Bible says this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means I walk in obedience. And as a result of walking in obedience, then I love my neighbor as myself. Doesn't mean I condone or accept everything that goes on, but I express the love of Jesus, even to those who are the mocking thieves. I still show the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus extends because I want you to remember these words. Jesus, right at the start of our text here today, said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus has been doubted for centuries, but extends his grace and forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this week, and we know that it is a week to remember your faithfulness in the sending of your son, Jesus. God, I believe that there are two sides to the cross. And I believe that right here today, that each of us individually has had to wrestle with your word and that you are the one who does the rebuking. Your, your scripture does. Your word teaches and corrects and rebukes and trains. But Lord, I also believe that your spirit is convicting. And so whether we are the mocking thief or the believing thief, God, thief, God would you just convict us of the very things we need to see and understand because your grace is enough. And so Lord, as we think about Palm Sunday and how we cry out Hosanna, the king that saves, God, may we just get a glimpse of who you are as king because it is you as king that invites us to be a part of your kingdom through your shed blood on the cross and your resurrection that defeats sin and death. And we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name I pray.